way. And then Trinity students, don't feel bad if you go. That's kind of an unfair proposition. <laughs> so if the option is to stay here with me or go and spend time with Cynthia, I would choose that too. So I don't blame you if you make that choice. <laughs> but we're going to be in Luke chapter 4. And as we mentioned, we're going to be restructuring our Sunday morning some. And the, the goal is so that everyone will have the opportunity uh, to attend worship, join in one of our discipleship classes, and then serve God's people. So one of the mantras we'll hear over and over is God's calling us to seek my face, grow in my grace, serve my people. And so our theme for August was going to be seek his face. And uh, the first week in July, I preached on Psalm 27. And uh, on that psalm where the, the cry of David, there's one thing that I have desired. One thing. And that's to dwell in the house of the Lord. And he says, the Lord says, you have said, seek my face. And my heart says, your face, Lord, will I seek. And it's that primal call that we were created to come into his presence and to worship him. So we're going to talk about worship, then we're going to talk about how we grow in grace, and then how we can serve uh, one another. So our goal is to help just maximize our time together, provide opportunities so we can, so everyone, seek his face and encounter him, hear his voice, and then grow in his grace to build up those educational opportunities. And this summer when I was thinking about it, I was really struck as I was reading through the Gospel of Luke and there was just a couple of passages that really jumped out that I thought these would be great passages to help frame and help shape what we want to do as we gather this year. You know, it's an interesting question just to kind of think about. All right, when Jesus started his ministry, what did he actually do? What were the things that were his top priority when he began his ministry? How did he begin his work? And so with that question in mind, we're going to look at Luke chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 14. And then we're going to scan the whole chapter, but we're going to drill down primarily on what I have in your bulletin, verse 18 and 19. But let's get a shape of the whole chapter. So Jesus has just... Um, He's been baptized. The Spirit comes down on him. The Lord declares, this is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And then the Spirit drives him out into the wilderness. And he does battle with Satan and the temptations. And then he overcomes, he conquers. And then now he's coming to begin his ministry. And it starts in verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report went about him went throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And what I want you to know is what Luke is going to do, he's going to frame this whole first chapter with this frame. It's, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And then flip over to the end of the chapter. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching 
in the synagogues of Judea. So this is framing, and what Luke is giving, this is meant to be paradigmatic. This is meant to be the paradigm. This is the framework. This is what Jesus came to do. He's going to frame it. His first priority was to do these two things, to teach in their synagogues and to preach. In the whole surrounding areas, Judea in the south, Galilee in the north, he's surrounding Jerusalem with his teaching and his preaching. And so up until this point, the Spirit has been the active agent. If you're following Luke's story up until this, the Spirit has been the active one who comes down and, and, um, and you have angels who are announcing what the Lord is going to do and the Holy Spirit is, is indwelling and acting and moving and shaping and then propelling. And now the Spirit is upon him. And what I want you to notice, he goes into their synagogues. So this is the gathering place where they're going to gather for devo devotion, come together to hear the word, to read the word, to expound the word, to study the word, to be together. And then the two things he focuses, he teaches and then he preaches. Two different key words, teaches, didasco, didactic, to teach, to engage, to teach the doctrine, the didactic. They're learning, teaching, and then preaching, Caruso, heralding, declaring, announcing, proclaiming. This is always used of a public announcement from an authorized official who's speaking on behalf of another. So these are the two core activities. And what Luke wants to do is frame and says, this is the foundation of what he came to do. And this is the foundation of his people when they gather. They come, they hear his preaching, his teaching. So I just want to unpack his first, the inaugural sermon that he gives in Nazareth to kick off his ministry. So let's kind of just walk through that passage. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he wrote up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and, he mar and they marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And then we'll keep going with the story so you can have the background. We're not going to zero in. But uh, notice there's, they're, they're celebrating and marveling at these gracious words. But then it quickly takes a turn. And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you do in Capernaum, do here in our hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. 
And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with rage, filled with wrath. And they rose up to drove him, drive him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill which their town was built and they, so that they could throw him off the cliff. But passing through his, their midst, he went away. And then the next stage, look, it says, and then when he went to Capernaum in the city of Galilee, and he was teaching on the Sabbath. So this whole first section, Luke is going to frame that Jesus' primary ministry is he goes around from village to village to synagogue to synagogue, preaching and teaching on the Sabbath. So let's kind of zero in that first just announcement there in 16, 17, 18. So notice, and when he came... To Nazareth. Now it's really interesting why Luke shifts the chronology because he doesn't start. He starts in Capernaum, but he he shifted the story to to zero and focus in on this one. And it's really intriguing because you rest. All right, well, why does Luke do this? And here Jesus is quoting Isaiah 61, and then John the Baptist is quoting when he launches his ministry Isaiah 40. And there's this sense that it's Isaiah 40 through Isaiah 66, this great section of the, the, the coming of the suffering servant who's going to lead this great restoration and this new exodus that's framing this whole section. Isaiah is Jesus' playbook that he's going to implement when he brings in his ministry. So in many ways, Jesus was not this radical innovator. He would not made the list of the Apple commercial, you know, with like Einstein and Kermit the Frog and all the different innovators throughout the world. He wouldn't have made that list. He's taking Isaiah, and this is his playbook. This is his game plan. What God has said he was going to do, he's going to do it. And then notice what it says. He came to Nazareth where he was brought up, and as was his custom... He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up and read. Now, if you go through Luke, this, as was his custom, was a phrase that Luke loves to use to tell, this is a settled habit. This is the way it's done. This is what we do. So four times up until this point, it's, you know, with Zechariah, they drew lots to which priest would go in and offer the incense, as was their custom. This is how they, this is how they did it. And then uh, when Jesus is taken to be circumcised on the eighth day, as was their custom. And when he was 12 years old and he stayed in the temple, as was his Custom. And so, one of the interesting things is you see that this is Jesus. Luke is establishing from the very beginning that Jesus' regular, settled habit is that he was in the synagogue every Sabbath, gathering with God's people, teaching God's word. This is what he did. And it's just interesting to think about how central that habit and reality was to who Jesus was, what he came to do. You know, you, I don't know if you saw my little, our youngest, Sam, is five, and uh, he, uh, we're move, our last one is moving out of the toddler stage, and it's really, you know, life is just fun when you're that age, and um, 
one of the things he, one of the ways we've kind of uh, bribed him is that he knows. So this is this is mommy and daddy's strategy to be able to sleep in just one day a week. So we tell him on Saturday, on Saturday, as soon as you wake up, you don't even have to ask per, for permission. You can watch as much either Bluey or Octonauts as you. You don't even have to ask. You just get the remote and start. And and but unfortunately, he can't tell the days of the week yet. I don't know when that comes in school. So so it like I'll roll over in bed and I'll hear this knock on my head. I'll wake up and I'll see him. He's like, Dad, what day is it? Like, it's Tuesday, man. He's like, well, can I watch a show? No. Well, I'm bored. What should I do? It's 4.30. I can think of a lot of things you can do right now. And so, but he knows like Saturday, that is my day. And we've even said it, we got a little step ladder that at five in the morning, I'll hear him dragging to the pantry so he can climb up and get a cereal. We put the milk on the bottom shelf in the fridge so he's not waking anyone up. And, and he knows like if I start Bluey at 4.30 in the morning, I can knock out all of season one and season two before anybody else even wakes up. And so he's ready on Saturday. But what's so interesting, and it just makes me like, if you don't believe in like original sin and spiritual warfare, just parent a toddler. Because what's so interesting is part of, I mean, what we do is we wake up on Sunday and we come to church. And my man, he's got to be here by seven. And so we had this streak going for about three months where it seemed like every Sunday morning when I'd start to wake him up, he would scream and act like we were like torturing him. It's like, no, I know you can get up because you were just uh, every day this week you were up by five. And then he would roll over and say, no, I don't get why. And for about three months, every time I'd wake him up, he would say the same thing. He'd start crying. He goes, why are you doing this to me? Why are you doing this to me? And I want to say, like, why am I, so I just, I'm not going to just get out of bed. But why, why am I doing it? So the answer is because we're part of God's people, and this is the Lord's day, and the Lord has commanded that his people gather into his presence to sing his praise and open up his word on his day. This is who we are. This is what we do. This is our custom. This is our settled habit. You know, if you think about the things that can shape you, like James Clear has a book called Atomic Habits, and this is mega bestseller. In many ways, the point of the book is to help you do what Jesus said he's going to do, set liberty to the captives. And it's all about how you can break unwanted habits and you can start new habits. And so many of them are just kind of, you know, the, the normal things uh, that you would think of. Like if you want to develop the habit of going in the, to the gym every day, try and reduce the friction of getting there, lay out your workout clothes in the, in the morning, all those type of things. But one of the things he talks about in the book is, you know, kind of the gold standard, the ultimate, the real transformation happens when you change not the behavior but the identity. So the real transformation happens when you stop asking, all right, should I eat the burger or should I eat the Caesar salad? Like if you're even asking those questions, you're probably going to make the wrong choice. So the real transformation comes at the identity level when you start asking the question, what would a healthy person choose? What would a healthy person do? So you're not even asking the question, should I get up and go do this? I am a runner, so I run. That's what we do. I am a writer, so I write. That's what we do. We don't ask the question, why are you doing this to me? This is who we are. And because this is who we are, 
This is what we do. And that was Jesus' settled habit. It was his custom. Every Sabbath, he was with the Lord's people in one of the synagogues preaching. And he was teaching. You know, somebody kind of challenged me a couple of months ago with a thought experiment. And they said, all right, let's just imagine that Jesus came to one of, just came to, came to church one Sunday. What would he do? Now, let's not imagine like the risen Christ resurrected and all of his manifest holy and awesome glory. And what would happen is all of us would fall on our face like dead men and women. But let's imagine like the, the human Jesus came. What would he do? And, you know, there was a couple different options kind of thrown out. Well, maybe he, like, he would spend time, you know, going around kind of cleaning up, picking up the mint wrappers from the parking lot. Or maybe he'd volunteer in the nursery. Or maybe he'd teach in one of the kids' classes. What would he do? I said, well, actually, it's an interesting thought experiment, but we don't have to guess. Like, Luke tells us exactly what he would do. He would walk in here, he'd come up front, and I would say, welcome, here, you take this, I'm going to sit down right now, and then he would start to preach and teach. And you know what every one of us would do? We would sit on the edge of our seat, locked in to hear every single word. We would go get every child in three square miles, we would bring them around, and we would say, sit down and listen to this, you are about to hear the words of life. That's what he would do, and that's what we would do. And then the point is, that's what he's still doing through his word and with his people and what he wants to do every single Sunday. It's his voice we're meant to come and hear. It's his face we're meant to come and see through his word. So this was Jesus' custom. He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll. Now don't miss, that's an interesting word. He unrolls the scroll. He stands up to read. And one of the themes running all throughout Luke is what does it mean that Christ has to be the one to open up the scriptures? So even at the resurrection, he's walking with the disciples from Emmaus and he, he opens up the scriptures so they can begin to see who this really is all about and the praises they sing in heaven. In Revelation, they sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. He is worthy to unroll the scrolls. So he takes them and he opens them up. And now what I want you to key in is notice the, the text and then the, in essence the sermon he preaches from this text. He opens it up to Isaiah 61 and he reads, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. A couple things to notice. Notice first, notice the, Jesus' qualifications, like what gives him the right to stand up and proclaim these things. It's because the Spirit of the Lord, there's three things that the Spirit, the Spirit is upon him, the Spirit has anointed him, and then the Spirit sends him. So a spirit upon him, and then anoints and sends. 
When you hear the word anoint, you need to think of at least a couple different categories. So in this world, who were the anointed ones? The ones who were anointed versus the king. The king would be anointed. That was God's designation that this is my my earthly uh, representative. So the king is anointed. The high priest is the anointed one. He's the one who's been anointed to, uh, to lead the ceremony and the sacrifices that make a way for people to live, uh, come into God's presence. And then some prophets, the prophets were kind of a wild card, you know, at this point. Some were anointed, some not. Sometimes they just kind of showed up. They were a little wild card. But it's at least the king and the high priest. And so he's, in essence, claiming those two roles and positions. And you can imagine, this, this you can see in their response, this would have been shocking. Like, well, wait a second. You're Joseph's boy. Who do you th- like, who are you making these claims that this is now on you? But that's what he's claiming, is that it's the Spirit who's first upon him, anointed him, and then has sent him. And then notice what he's come to do. To proclaim the good news to the poor... He has sent me to proclaim liberties to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty to those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, his grace. So you see how central that to proclaim is. He came to announce something, to declare something. You know, like if the kids were still in here, the way I'd describe it to them, this might be helpful to you too. But if we were going to like a party, and I say, all right, what are we going to do at the party? Like the way the grammar could work is if we're going to this party, we are going to celebrate. And the way we celebrate is we are going to play games, we are going to eat cake and ice cream, and we are going to open presents. So that, that's the party. That's, we're celebrating, and how we celebrate is play, eat, open. And so here, he's, all right, what has he come to do? He's come to proclaim. So he came to, he's proclaiming something. What is he proclaiming? He's proclaiming the good news, the gospel. He's proclaiming liberty. He's proclaiming sight. He's proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. They're all under that banner of proclamation. He came to proclaim. And then there's one more kind of verb. It's interesting. It's to set at liberty or to send. So that word for he sent me. Do you see that in 18? The Holy Spirit sent me. We get our word apostle from. The nouns apostolos, apostle to be sent. So the Holy Spirit sent me. And it's an interesting play on words that Jesus uses there in, uh, in 18. To set at liberty or to send. To send out the free ones. So there's this dynamic where you you come to me and you hear this word of proclamation and then you experience the recovery of sight and you experience freedom and then I send you out into the world as a free one. One who's been set free. That's what he came to do, to proclaim and then to release, to send out. That's part of the cycle. Come to hear and then go out and live what you've heard. A couple other things. Notice his audience. This gets it where you can see it in to, to thee, to thee, to thee, to the poor, to the captives, to the blind. So this, this is the audience that he's come to gather, to proclaim to those who are poor, those who are weak, wounded, weary, broken. This is contra the proud, contra the self-sufficient, contra the, uh, the arrogant, to the poor, to the captives. We'll see that, what that means in a second. And to the blind. 
Isn't it interesting that he's announcing, he's proclaiming sight to the blind? It's like, wait, how does that work? Has a word that's proclaimed brings sight? Don't you, you? If you want to bring sight to the blind, you have to have you have to do something. You have to have like an operation. It's not something you say. It's that something you have to like work. But he's proclaiming sight to the blind. And then notice what is proclaimed. Now here's the kind of question. There's four things, and how do these work and relate together? So is it he proclaims the gospel, the good news? And then it's also the year of the Lord's favor, where they're the same thing. And then in between, it's release or liberty and sight. So is, are those two unpacking gospel and good news and favor? Or are they four different things? So I'm proclaiming good news, this announcement. Something's being heralded. It's, it's an announcement. But then notice the two. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives... And the recovery of sight to the blind. These are words, liberty, redemption, and recreation. Two shorthand, two images. He came to proclaim liberty. Now this is an interesting word that we, we might need a little uh, tonal adjustment to really be able to hear. Because I mean, we're Americans. I mean, if anybody in the world knows freedom, it's us. I mean, we have liberty bells that we ring, and this is a, the land of liberty, where it is an inalienable right for, for life and liberty, and what we mean by that is my undiluted pursuit of my happiness. And so you think, all right, well, when he says liberty, it's, a, it's a interesting because the word is liberty, it could be translated forgiveness, it's forgiveness, or release. So same word used like in the Exodus, same word as somebody who's bound in prison. You almost need to think of somebody in prison, but it's, it's debtor's prison. You have run up a debt that you can't pay, and then someone is going to let you, let you free from there. It's, it's they've been released. They've been forgiven. And a good reading exercise is to run all the way through the Gospel of Luke and just mark how much forgiveness of sins is central to what Jesus came to do. When he came to preach. You know, he came to preach, proclaim, that primarily revolves around proclaiming God's forgiveness. Forgiveness of sins. Then he also came to teach. And that teaching is primarily how to live now in the light of that forgiveness in God's world. And even both disciples, like Matthew and Luke, they both kind of foreground different things in their great commission. Like in Matthew's great commission, it's make disciples and teach them. This is the teaching gospel to give you these great teaching blocks of what you're supposed to teach. And in Luke's version, what Jesus iterates is to announce to the whole world the forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in my name. And so that's the first thing, that this, this release, this forgiveness. And part of the scandal is that the people in his world, like, they know where forgiveness comes from. It comes from the temple. Like, it's, it's the high priest who does that. There's certain procedures and sacrifices that, can, that have to happen for this to happen. So he shocks them. This is what God does. God does this in the Exodus. We're the people who have been set free and forgiven and redeemed. And so he comes announcing that. And then notice the next thing. This is an interesting word too because it's, it's the recovery of sight to the blind, but it's, it's the word is it's re-seeing. So you re-see. So you, you could see at one time, but you can't now, and now you can re-see. You can see again. 
It's this image that it's already been sung in Luke, that those who were sitting in darkness now have seen a great light. A light has dawned, and they can see. And just in the first creation, the first act of original creation was to speak words of light. Let there be light. There's darkness. There's void. There's chaos. And the first word is a word to bring light in recreation. The first act is that a word is spoken, and it brings light. It enlightens the mind, and it enlightens the heart. It enlightens the, the life, the way lights our path. And so I think these two are a summary of what this great gospel is. He came to bring victory over both dungeons and darkness. He came to set people free from both bondage and blindness. And then that fourth thing is the, the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor. This is a remarkable thing that he's saying. It's this year of grace that is coming. You know, it's remarkable that you read through the prophets and some often they're very, kind of, it seems a sense of being hard and harsh as God says, you know, when the day of the Lord comes, there's going to be judgment. But it's always struck me, it's, it's the day of the Lord, but it's, it's, it's the day of wrath, but it's the year of grace. And so he's coming, bringing this, this year of, of jubilee, this year of, of being set free. And this is another thing that would have shocked them because this is only the thing, the high priest is the only one who can announce the year of Jubilee. I mean, that would be kind of like if I stood up here right now and just started announcing that I am going to give all of you a dispensation from the IRS and none of you have to pay taxes for the next year. I mean, you might say, well, like, that's great, but I, I don't know how that will work out. You know, they're hearing, like who, like, who gives you the right to say these kind of things? He's making these remarkable claims. This year of Jubilee has come, but it's the year of the Lord's favor. And what that is is echoing back to the, the benediction of great Aaron's great benediction. The Lord's favor means that the Lord's face is now shining upon you. His face shines upon you and he's blessing you and he's giving you peace. And what Jesus is saying, it's in my word, in this message, what I'm bringing about is the reconciliation that was broken. The relationship between you and God was broken because of Adam's sin, because of your sin, because of sin in this world has been broken. And I'm bringing back the unification of that. God's face can shine upon you once again. And then notice the remarkable point that Jesus makes. He rolls up the scroll, he hands it back, all eyes are fixed on him, and he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And that's an echo, they would have heard, that's an echo to Psalm 95, before every time the word was opened, and this, it's run that, this started probably a thousand years before Jesus, and even in like many uh, liturgical traditions now, Psalm 95 is recited before any type of uh, public reading of the word. But you hear Psalm 95, Oh come, let us sing unto the Lord, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving, let us make a joyful noise to him with a song of praise. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all other gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. In his hands form the dry land. 
Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are his people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. So this is wonderful. This call to worship, we're calling God's people to worship. And then there's the warning. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts like they did at Meribah in the wilderness. So they would, they would sing that before every time they'd come together to open up the word because we're coming into God's presence to hear the living voice of the living Lord. And we don't want to have hard hearts. We want to hear it today as he speaks. And Jesus, it hit, he hits that word. Today, you're, this scripture, today you're hearing the voice of the living Lord and this scripture is being fulfilled. So it's a remarkable statement. And what I want us to kind of key in on is just notice that Jesus' first priority when he comes is his first priority is his preaching and his teaching. To bring his, God's people together and to, to, to open up the word so they see him in it and hear his voice and see how he's fulfilling these things. And if that was his first priority, we want that to be our first priority. One of the reasons we want to shift somewhat our structures is so we can have the opportunity so everyone can come into his presence to hear his voice, to hear his preaching, and then hear his teaching. So I want to take a moment then as we wrap up and we're going to close and I want to spend a few minutes just praying and celebrating, just celebrating this day. I think often we, uh, we don't sufficiently, and I know I don't. Sometimes Sam's not the only one who's waking up really early on Sunday morning and saying, why? And we don't officially, or uh, uh, we don't fully appreciate what this day is and what it symbolizes and what we celebrate. And then I want to pray and thank the Lord for the gift of his word. The gift of Christ, the living Christ who still speaks to us. And then we'll come to the table as we celebrate that great symbol of his reconciliation. And the forgiveness that is announced is also tasted and experienced each week. So Lord, we thank you for your word and we celebrate this day as a day set aside to honor your son, our eternal savior and exalted redeemer. We celebrate this day, set it aside to celebrate his resurrection from the dead on the first day of the week and the first day of new creation. And we affirm that by his resurrection, he was declared to be your son with the power of your spirit. And so we praise you that he laid down his life to make atonement for our sins and he rose again for our justification so that he would bring us into your presence and we might experience the fullness of joy. We thank you that that stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone of your kingdom on this earth. And only you could accomplish such things. And it's marvelous in our eyes. And we praise you that Christ has risen from the dead, the first fruits of all believers who have fallen asleep in death. And as we celebrate the resurrection on this day, let us experience a new and a fresh resurrection power. Let us rise with him from death to sin to life and righteousness from the dust of the earth to a holy and heavenly life. Let us walk in the newness of life. So you, you promised that you came to speak a word that would set those who are bound free. So I pray for anyone in this room and they know they're bound. Maybe they're bound by 
destructive thoughts or bound by destructive behaviors or patterns. We pray that by your power of your spirit and your powerful word, you would set them free. Now pray for all of us that you would give sight to the blind. So often we can be so blind and not see your goodness, not see your grace, not see the things that we should celebrate and be thankful for. So help us not to be blind, but help us see. And above all, help us to see and praise you for your word, that great lamp to our feet and light to our path. I thank you for preserving it through generation to generation. So when it uh, comes here to us, I thank you for translating it into a language that we can hear and we can understand and ask that you help us not to neglect it or take it for granted, but let it shine the light of your glory into our hearts and fill us with your joy so we can hear the sound of our Savior's voice. And this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. Jesus came, what he proclaimed is he proclaimed the good news of this is the year of the Lord's favor. And one of our theme verses that we looked at in June, and it's going to be the theme, is in Psalm 27 when David David asks in Psalm 27, he, he, uh, he responds to the Lord's call where God says, seek my face. He says, your face, Lord, I seek. Do not hide your face from me. Don't hide it. But then David knows, and a few psalms later, in Psalm 51, he's living in tension. Because in Psalm 51, he says, oh, hide your face from my sin. So he has this, how can, like, I, I need God's face to shine on me, but I need his face not to look on me and my sin. So how can he look at me, but turn his face away from my sin? And the beauty of the gospel and what Jesus came to not just proclaim, but to accomplish is that on the cross, the Father turns his face away from him so that by faith, he'll never turn his face away from us. And that's what we celebrate. We break the bread and then we come to the cup and the cup is the symbol of the forgiveness that can be found in him. So here we have a couple different stations. There'll be a gluten-free station in the back. And uh, when our servers are in place, this is the Lord's table. So if you are one of the Lord's people and uh, you come and to remember that what was given so his face can shine upon you, the forgiveness of sin. So once we're in replace, you come.